Hey, everybody. Welcome to Black on the Air. This is Larry Wilmer. I'm Black on the Air. I'm back, and I'm Black on the Air. And we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network. And today's guest is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And, you know, there's really not much to talk about today. There's really nothing happening in the news. I don't know how you guys feel, but I wish there was something going on that we could cover. Guys, it's really unbelievable. Um, You know that ticker that they used to have in New York of, I forget what it was, but it was like uh, all the billions of people that something, something. (laughs) There's always like a counter like that. That's the type of counter we need for the shit that happens with the Trump administration because something's happening every second. You can't keep up with it. It's so insane. It's hard to even cover it because once you cover it, something else happened, you know. But uh, cover it, we must. And um, before we get to that, though, I did want to recognize, I wanted to thank you guys for all the tweets that you sent suggesting all the inappropriate names for uh, the president trying to combine like a fruit and a dictator, that type of thing. There were some good ones out there. You know, mine, of course, is Orange Julius Caesar, Mango Mussolini. And there were some very clever ones. I mentioned some last week. But I have to point out, I have to give props to, I think his name is Michael Vaskwright. I think is his name, at SRS Journalist. Good job, Michael. You gave us three that were all pretty good. One of them is my favorite, though. Okay, the Persimmon Pinochet was pretty good. The You said the Adolf Apricot, but it's actually, it should be the Apricot Adolf, which I think is good. Apricot, Apricot, Apricot Adolf is pretty good. That's the best way to pronounce it, right? Apricot Adolf, yeah. That's pretty good, not bad. But I have to say, my favorite one that you did was the Nectarine Noriega. That's pretty good. That's very funny. The Nectarine Noriega. I think what I like about that is that, well, first of all, nectarines are never talked about as a fruit that much, really. They're really not talked about that much, you know. I don't know how people really feel about nectarines, you know. And a nectarine can get mushy really fast, and it's horrible, like in a hurry, you know. Even faster than peaches, I think. Nectarines can go, and nobody really makes nectarine jam or, you know, nectarine cobbler. You don't see that. So nectarines are kind of like on the sideline, which I kind of like. I like that they're kind of marginalized. I know this is insane. (laughs) And Noriega is like a two-bit thug type of dictator, which is hilarious to me. So it feels perfect to me, nectarine Noriega. It feels like the right speed for where Trump is. I think if some of these leaders who are a little too famous, I think their place in history is a little too infamous, I guess, for where I think Trump should be. I think he is more of a nectarine Noriega, you guys. I really do. I mean, Mango Mussolini is my personal favorite, you know, that I made up, of course. Orange Julius Caesar just makes me laugh, too. But nectarine Noriega, I may have to put up there. That's pretty good. So, Mike, with your permission, I'll be adding that to the rotation here. Okay, so... So this weekend we had this horrible situation in Charlottesville. Is that North Carolina? It was Charlottesville. Charlottesville is in Virginia. I always think anything with Charlotte is in one of the Carolinas. You know, that's where my mind goes. Charlottesville is in Virginia. I apologize, Virginia. Virginia is for lovers. Don't get mad. But in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, where there was uh, supposedly a protest of the taking down of a Robert E. Lee statue that was previously, I think, in what was called Robert E. Lee Park. And I could be getting some of this wrong, so I apologize. And I believe it was changed to Emancipation Park. And it's it's kind of this, the trend right now, or the movement of having Confederate imagery and statues taken down. And there was a group of white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and alt-right, whatever you want to call it, or as Hillary Clinton refers to them as the deplorables, who wanted to protest this and um, had some things to say about it. And they were met with resistance, as they should be. And some bad things uh, happened because of it. And some people got hurt. And I think a couple of people died, too. The woman, um, Heather Heyer, I believe is her name. She was one of the people who were hit by a car. Some asshole just rammed his car into this group of people. That was horrible, which hopefully they will call domestic terrorism, because that's exactly what it was. And uh, some people were viciously beaten by some of these thugs. And there was a lot of fighting and all these sorts of things. But the... Now, that was horrible just on its own. And some of the, of course, big news that come out of it is the way that the president has covered it, which, you know, this really makes me sad in some ways. You know, I, of course, I have anger about this and everything. But even presidents who, 
you don't like or, you know, you've been against or have whatever, you know, when things happen bad to the country, usually they say something that brings America, you know, together for at least that moment. Look, even our our previous most divisive election was the 2000 election, right, when Gore won the popular vote. Bush uh, became president and he had the whole Supreme Court and the chads and all that stuff. When 9-11 happened, Bush was standing in that rubble. I don't believe there was an American who did not, who was not on that side of what he was saying, you know, with the firemen who was standing there and all Americans. We were all united. In fact, the world was behind us. And everyone kind of tacitly agreed. We can criticize the president on another day, but not this day. This is a day when we should all be together and all be reminded of what does bring us together and what makes this place unique, you know, particularly when an attack or something like that focuses that type of thing. And it's happened with other administrations as well. And this is a moment when I believe the president should try his best to be presidential and to rise above politics, regardless of what's going on, and to send a message to the country that that there is a clear moral clarity coming from that office that we can unite around, that is beyond political partisanship or however you feel about it, you know. Harry Truman, for example. Harry Truman was not like a real enlightened progressive, you know. I'm sure he probably flung that inward around more than any rapper on the scene right now, I'm sure. But he did integrate the armed forces, you know. He did the right thing at the right time, regardless of what was going on. But now we have our mango Mussolini, our nectarine Noriega, who can't seem to call out the easiest fucking thing to call out, which is this hatred coming from the alt-right. And it is hatred, you guys. And it was so fucking disappointing. I mean, it was so disappointing. It made me angry. It made me upset. I did not have jokes for it at front. At first, I'm, I say at first because I am a comedian. I'm required to come up <laughs> with jokes, you know. But I'm watching it, and I can't believe what's going on when he made that statement, you know. And, and I'll talk about some of the things that he said. The biggest thing that hit me, though, was this false equivalency of this both sides now bullshit, which I think was a song in the 60s, not the bullshit part. But uh, you cannot compare people who are fighting hateful things with those that propose them. <laughs> those are not the same thing. People that are saying we need to replace the Jews who are opposed by people who think that is wrong is not an equal thing. One is right and the other is wrong. And this has nothing to do with left and right. It has nothing to do with Democrat or Republican. This is a simple matter of right is wrong. And you have to call that shit out. And you cannot mince your words when you're calling that shit out. I'm sorry. And I don't understand even where the president is coming from. You know, I get it. You guys have to remember, he is a narcissistic sociopath. And I've always said his racism is the lazy racism, the racism he was born with. He's never investigated these things. He's he's very reflexive in his racism. And I think he coddles these groups more because they support him and like him than he has any thoughtful interest in any of the ideology or even cares about proposing any of the ideology. It's so related to narcissism. It makes me sick. And that's what makes it the most dangerous, you know. And Trump has proven he can turn against anybody in a second as soon as they don't like him. And it doesn't matter. He did that with the fucking Pope, you guys, with the Pope. The president doesn't like the Pope because the Pope doesn't like him. That's insane. This is what we're dealing with, you know. But this false equivalency and putting that out, like we're supposed to just accept it, you know, and like we're supposed to turn our brains off and not see what's in front of us is something that I just don't understand. And this group itself, let's talk about this, what's really going on here. Because I don't like it when people call what they were doing a peaceful protest and there are people just there peacefully protesting the taking down of this Confederate uh, imagery and everything. And even Trump, here's what Trump said. Trump said, you're changing history when you do that and you're changing culture. And I say, yes, that is correct. We are changing history and we are changing culture because we have to. And he even said, uh, you're airbrushing history. No, that's actually what's already been done. These Confederate statues are the airbrush of history. That's what exists right now. Because let me tell you what this is. Confederate statue and Confederate imagery, you guys. These are not symbols and images to remind 
Southern whites of their vaulted history or that type of thing. These are images to remind black people that they are niggers. Okay? That's what it was put there for. Black people, you are niggers, and this is the symbol to remind you of that. Most of this shit started in the 1920s when the Klan was at their peak. That's when most of these statues were put in place. And a black person living in this area knows that that's what those symbols are there to remind them of their place, their place in society. These symbols are to remind us that we are above you and you are a nigger. That's what those symbols are, okay? That's what they represent, and that's why they need to get away. And if you don't quite understand that, let me give you an example. Because also, the people that were marching, I just can't believe this, they say, we will not be replaced by the Jews. Like, what does that even mean? Like, why do the Jews want to become anti-Semitic? Why, why would the Jews want to replace them as these hateful people? You know. And by the way, these people that are promoting themselves as so proto-American and so uber-American are wrapping themselves in a disgraced, defeated German flag as Nazis. That's another thing that I don't understand. If you're so American, why are you wrapping yourself in this German flag, this, this Nazi flag? But here's the thing. Can you imagine if you're a Jew living in Germany and— uh, there's all these images of the Nazi past that you're just supposed to accept as somebody celebrating their culture. So how do I get to the store? Just go down Goebbels Lane, and uh, it's right by Mangalay Parkway. Yeah, just go down there, and uh, it's at the Hitler Auditorium. You, you know where that is, right? Could you imagine having to live with that shit every day just thrown in your fucking face? That's what Confederates— symbolism is for blacks living in the South. That's what it feels like, you guys. You have to understand that, okay? And then there's this, uh, there's just this, this uh, appropriation of the black fight just to not be fucking killed, right? Black Lives Matter, that's really what the Black Lives Matter is. Black Lives Matter, and this isn't even a defense of Black Lives Matter. This is an explanation. It's not even an effort to want to subjugate somebody or hurt somebody or do that. It's saying, just please stop fucking killing us. That's all it's asking for at its root, okay? But there was so much criticism about not only the group, but especially the words Black Lives Matter. People who even were sympathetic to it had criticisms for it. Howsomever, phrase my mother used to use all the time, howsomever, it appears that anybody else can appropriate that phrase and it's just fucking okay. It's okay to say blue lives matter and I'm just supposed to swallow that shit like it's okay. And these asshole motherfuckers are marching saying white lives matter. Go fuck yourselves. You can't just take that fucking slogan like it's yours. Come up with your own fucking slogan, okay? Black lives matter is for a reason. But white lives matter, what you're saying is fuck you, black lives matter. So you go fuck yourself. Come up with your own shit and we'll knock that shit down to him. All right? I know I'm angry today. What's going on, you guys? <laughs> so anyhow, I told you this stuff which just really upset me. And just some of the things that Trump says around this, it, there's just no, there's no thoughtfulness in any of this, you guys. And you know what? I like the fact that I see conservatives speaking out against him and speaking out against this. And you guys have to know, this is who I am as well. I, I really don't see this as a partisan issue. You have to know, there are so many people on the right who disavow this type of ideology as well. So many conservatives who are sickened by this as well. Many Republicans as well. You know, please know that don't make this a Democrat-Republican thing. I know Trump is the head of this party. I believe he's hijacked a lot and people got on that train for whatever reasons. But I think many people are, are like throwing up in their mouths right now, you know, because of this and having to swallow it, unfortunately. But when he says things like, that there were many well-meaning people there who were there to, to peacefully protest, and there were like some bad guys around them. You know, there was just some people there. And I said, okay, I, I can't imagine how that works. Like, uh, yeah, I'm just here to peacefully protest the removal of a racist image. And, oh, really? Well, I'm here to nakedly express my hatred of Jews and blacks. Oh, hey, want to march together? Let's do that. You know, how the fuck are there innocent people there to peacefully protest with all these people around them? Wouldn't you leave immediately? Say, motherfucker, I'm not marching with you. What are you saying? How can that even exist? The fact that that would even be said is amazing to me. So anyhow, uh, this stuff just makes me mad. Finally, I just want to say one, one last thing on this, guys. Um, many times, um, and I've said this on the nightly show, that um, rather than giving you an answer that's forced into either your view of what a yes or no is, I will disagree with your premise and force a different question. 
So we're, we have to look at something in a different way. So disagreeing with the premise, I think, is very important in society. We have to not only search for the answers, we have to ask better questions many times. And we have to look for different ways to frame arguments and that sort of thing. So one thing that gets me is, and the president said this, and some people said this, hey, you know, this is a time for unity and a time for us to come together. I disagree with that premise, okay? I don't believe this is a time for unity. I believe this is a time for clarity. We need clear eyes, full hearts, and righteous resistance to people that espouse these types of ideas. If anybody is marching down the street, I'm going to make this clear, and they say, we need to replace Jews, I am with every fucking Jew that wants to push back on that. I'm behind you, I'm beside you, I'm in front of you, and I'm with you. That requires a response. That doesn't require unity or coming together, okay? We fought a fucking war over this, you guys. This shit is, should have been squashed. I don't want to have to fight that war again. But if we do have to fight it, I'm right there. All right, that's enough. We got a real good talk with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Did I mention that at the top? I don't know if I did. But uh, he is a Laker legend, one of my uh, sports idols, and I can't wait. There's a lot going on right now, and I know what everybody's thinking. What does the man who gave us the skyhook have to think about this? But before my talk with Kareem, how about a quick word from one of my sponsors? All right, welcome back, guys. I am very excited. I'm trying not to... My daughter calls it fangirling. I don't know what it, if what it means for me. Fanboying, I guess. Is that what it's called? <laughs> but I'm a huge fan of the gentleman I have right in front of me. Not as just an athlete, of which he is one of the best of all time, but just as a human being and as a you know cultural icon. So please welcome Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to Black on the Air. Hey, Kareem. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Good. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming down. I really appreciate it. Not know? a problem. Now, Kareem, as I've said, um, you've really had an amazing career in the public, everything from child prodigy basketball player to amazing, you know, superstar. But then also you've been a a cultural critic, a political critic, a media critic, even. There's so many things that you've weighed in on in the culture. And so just to start with all the stuff that's going on, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what's happening this weekend in Charlottesville, if you've observed. Have you been watching some of the coverage of some of that? Yeah, I have. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I was really affected emotionally mm-hmm. by it. You know, it's yeah. still hard to talk about it. You it know, is, because I it, agree. It's so outrageous mm-hmm. what went down. Yeah. And uh, the way that the, the leader of our country is yeah. trying to, uh, you know, just poo-poo it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I can't believe that. Yeah. This is supposed to be America. He's the president of the United States. Right. He's supposed to have uh, a much more unifying stance mm-hmm. on this, and it's the exact opposite. Yeah. It's hard to even quantify where that comes from. I, I can't imagine a need to be partisan during a time like that, you know. This is about our, our nation. This yeah. is about all of us. It's mm-hmm. not groups. It's about America. Right. And uh, it's very hard to believe what we're seeing. Yeah. yeah. But there it is. Yeah. What do you, what do you think when you see, um, you know, there has been a big push for the removal of a lot of the Confederate imagery. And you grew up in a time when right. people weren't kidding around about Confederate flag and that kind of stuff. How does I it feel you when you see that happening in the culture? Is it Does it feel hopeful? Do you, are you frustrated that people don't understand like what that means to people of color and that type of thing? Well, for me, I you know I have an interesting perspective yeah. because of my age. You know, right. I'm, I'm 70 years old. I God, remember... 70, man. That's yeah. I, believe it. I remember the first time I went south... Uh-huh. And uh, the the bus went over the bridge from the District of Columbia into Virginia, and right. there were all these hate signs up right. in just common, you know, stores. Right. You know, mom and pop stores had uh, no Negroes or the other N-word. Right. I've seen really bad times. Yeah. You know, I, I remember when the bomb was uh, put in the yeah. church in Birmingham and With stuff the like girls. that. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've seen murder a number of times in my lifetime. I, mm-hmm. I, I remember... I remember very vividly mm-hmm. uh, when Emmett Till was murdered. Mm. What did it feel like in those times? Because in those it, times, it was, I want to get have people. It was that, like you lived in Transylvania yeah. and you were, you know, the target. You know, as wow. as, as a black American, uh-huh. uh, you could become the victim and lose your life, right, over nothing. Yes, and uh, in fact, uh, my father, who's from Chicago, which was, I mean, even Martin Luther King was saying how horribly racist Chicago felt, even more so than parts of the South at the time. Mm-hmm. Like he even mentioned how. 
here's here's a lot of what people don't understand, like contextually, like the Emmett Till situation. Even some black people were saying, "My God, why did he whistle at a white woman?" Like, like it wasn't even. It's not as clear cut as it is today. You know, like that's that's how much fear there was in society that black people would even think that type of thing. It's clear cut today because the woman. finally admitted yes. that she lied. Yes. He didn't. I know. Yes. But, right. uh, you know, uh, in those days, who was going to believe him anyway? Right. Exactly. But, you know, he lost his life before he even had a chance to go to trial. Yes. And the white man who did it even bragged about it. Yeah. Afterwards. You know, yeah. at the time. Yeah. Because of the double jeopardy. Right. But, you know, there has been some heroes in, in all of this. Yes. I, I have to say... Uh, Miss Heyer, yes. you know, she's Heather a, Heyer. Uh-huh. a martyr for the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, she didn't wake up that morning thinking that that would be the case. Right. And uh, I hope uh, the good Lord blesses her, and mm-hmm. I hope she's in a comfortable place. Yeah. Her you mother know? had some very eloquent words at, yeah. the, at the service today. It's amazing. Many times the angels are hiding in plain sight among us, you know, people who exactly, yeah. who don't get a lot of attention, who are doing the right thing. Just because they want to do the right thing. Yes. Yeah. Just because they want to do the right thing, they're not yeah. going to get credit for it. And then a horrible thing like this happens. Yeah. Also, you know, Kenneth Frazier mm-hmm. from Merck and uh, Kevin Plank from Under Armour. Now, Kenneth Frazier... And the people that you're mentioning, they were yeah. part of the president's council, right? Yeah, they were part of the president's council, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, uh, Inga Thulin from 3M, mm-hmm. uh, Denise Morrison from Campbell's Soup Company, they've all dropped out of the president's commission mm-hmm. in protests over this. Do you think that's a good thing to do? That's a great thing to do. Uh-huh. That's all they can do. Right. But that's the way to do it, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. we have. This is about the morality of our nation. Right. It has nothing to do with politics. Yes. What do you think is the best way to handle, like, it's very difficult to get a a handle on how to go about doing things now, because back in in your day, Kareem, I'll say your day too, you know, you know what I mean. (laughs) Back in your day, Kareem, but there was legislation that people needed in order to accomplish things. So there were clear cut goals, you know, like for instance, desegregation, those types of things. We want to eat at lunch counters or we don't want to sit in the back of the bus. Now, I mean, it's almost unfocused hatred, you know, to have a... a, Well, we we now have the means to legally fight racist actions uh and the whole idea of the equality that's supposed to be guaranteed by our constitution now has some teeth. Right. You know, we can fight it, but the battle for people's hearts and souls, mm-hmm. as we have seen this weekend, has uh, we're just starting out with right. some of these people. Yeah. And I heard some of the statements by one of the leaders of the uh, neo-fascists mm-hmm. speaking about President Trump's son-in-law. And, oh, Jared Kushner? Yeah, mm-hmm. and just called him some very vile names and said he did not have the right to be married to a, a Christian woman. Right. Kareem, they don't care who it is. Oh, no, they don't. I they don't. really don't care. You know, Jew is enough. You know, they don't care who you're married to or if you're related to the president. In fact, the president is just a tool for them as well. Mm-hmm. You know, eat yeah. the, and both the president and those groups would gladly drop one another if they're not serving their needs. Exactly. <laughs> right, which is makes it even more insidious. Yeah, you know? but the, yeah, that type of cynicism and uh, just total rejection of everyone else Everyone else is beneath them, you know, yeah. and, and that's uh, chilling. Man. Yeah. What is that? We've had an emergence of, I don't know if emergence is the right word, but it seems like more athletes are speaking up on cultural issues and, mm-hmm. and uh, saying things. LeBron has come out more, it seems like. It seems like he was a little reticent at first. And it's amazing. He gets criticized for it. I don't know why people criticize LeBron for coming out. Do you, what, LeBron what is, is supposed to be content with the millions of dollars yes, he's know, making. I Don't know. you know that? Yes, that's right. Nigga, you got some money? What you, what you being all upset and, about? You know, go <laughs> go drive your Cadillac. You know, that, that right. that's where a whole lot of that thought process starts. It, it has no relevance. And I think it is very revealing, you know, mm-hmm. what that means. Yes. You know, how, how people react to LeBron because they still have the same paternalistic Yes, reaction exactly. to a black athlete that they did in the 1940s. Right. When uh, when Jackie Robinson, who, you know, after he retired, you know, and just felt that his work was not done, he was criticized so much. Exactly. It's like, look what you got, boy. You know, why can't you be happy? You know, but it's exactly those people that society needs, I feel, to do the speaking for the people that don't have a voice. Yeah. Uh, a whole lot of powerless people don't understand 
the tools that they have to to fight these things, and, and right. they need to fight. Uh, black Americans in the former South are going head to head against uh, voter ID suppression, yeah, so that they can't vote. Uh, the whole idea of uh, you know Jim Crow is still being carried out by different means. Uh-huh. But it's the same thing happening. Uh, they refuse uh, the power of the ballot, mm-hmm. and uh, their uh, educational opportunities are, are not what they need to be to mm-hmm. participate in today's society. Right. We're going to have uh, generations of losers unless we get a, a mm-hmm. better idea of how to how to help these people. Uh, all people, you know, they mm-hmm. education is uh, is a key for our nation being number one. Right. And, uh, we have to realize that and uh, do the right things for. All of our people. Yeah. Did you have a take on the Colin Kaepernick situation? Because that yeah. seems to not lose resonance. Colin Kaepernick, of course, for people that aren't sports fans, is San Francisco 49er quarterback who was, I believe, first he was sitting during the national anthem, and then I think he kneeled. And it was basically his silent protest of police brutality in America. And uh, he can't get a job. Um, he's got the talent to lead a team to the Super Bowl. Yeah. But he can't get a job because uh, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the owners in the NFL are much more conservative mm-hmm. than uh, some of the other sports. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a league that has a, a team named Redskins. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, they've got some work to do. Yeah. But it seems like uh, it's not just the owners, though. He's. It feels like he's caused division within players themselves. You know, like players don't know how to deal with that. And I think, I believe it's because of the issue. Like I've said before, if he was kneeling for breast cancer during the national anthem, nobody would have a problem with it. You know? Exactly. Because it has something to do with uh, something that touches on race. Right. Flags go up. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think some athletes are reticent to be active in social issues these days? I think it's the... The whole idea that, uh, you know, they, you can't be successful economically mm-hmm. if uh, you have a target on your back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you will have a target on your back if you complain about the issues that deal with race. Right. Certain things are not supposed to be touched. Yes. Right. Um, we come from a country where uh, up until not too long ago, people of color were the last hired and the first fired. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, other people had a guaranteed access to success. So uh, right. the change has uh, really alarmed some people, and uh, I, we end up with uh, people complaining that they can't get into college. has no basis in reality, but yes. there you are. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Black people <laughs> prevented me from getting into college right. or minorities or whatever. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people, I don't know if they're familiar with how far your activism in sports goes. Um, I mean, you— basically boycotted the 68 Olympics, right? Well, I, I didn't want to go. Uh, Avery Brundage was still the uh, commissioner of the mm-hmm. U.S. Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that uh, refused to allow two Jewish athletes to compete in mm-hmm. 1936 mm-hmm. because it was going to annoy Mr. Hitler. Right. And he, at that right. time in 1968, uh, he was still the commissioner. And uh-huh. I, I didn't feel like doing anything right. for him. What did it feel like at that time, Karim? Because you were such a young man then, yeah. you know. People view athletes as these figures, but people forget you're a kid, you know, during that time. You're away from home. You're at UCLA, and you're in that situation. Like uh, the famous thing that you're associated with, too, was that talk. I think it was you and Jim Brown and, yeah, and Bill Russell. And, Ali. and you got together with, with Ali. Mm-hmm. And what were you guys there for? Were you there to hear Ali out when Ali was— uh, We were there basically to advise him mm-hmm. and— Try to understand how we could help him if mm-hmm. e- if it was even possible. When he had his uh, uh, conscientious objection to the Vietnam War, right? Right. But uh, you know, we. So you realized, guys were there as advisors, really, just to yeah, to, advise and, and just to listen to what he uh-huh. what he was all about and right. understand it. But uh, it, it was very easy to understand, and yeah, he he put it. He said he didn't have any problem with the Viet Cong, you know. Right. What did it feel like as a young man, though, to be a part of that? I mean, I'm sure Bill Russell was probably somewhat of an idol for you at, at the time. Bill, I, I felt that Bill Russell was a, was a great role model for yes, me. Yes, right. Because of how he handled things. You yeah. know? And that, that was a primary example. You know, to, to do something in order to, to combat this, we had to be patient. We had yes. to be intelligent. We had to be focused. Mm-hmm. We couldn't just lash out and right. be angry. Yeah. And uh, Bill really helped me understand that. Oh, that's and cool. That, 
Did, did the, you guys have any talks back then? Did he take you like under, was he a mentor I read his at all? book, mm-hmm. Go Up for Glory. Uh-huh. That was uh, one of his books. Right. He, he published a book just a couple of years ago about his relationship with, with Red Arbag. Yes, which a lot of people don't know about how yeah. how forward-thinking Red was at the time uh, with Bill Russell and, and Red, the Red situation wanted in Boston. The, the best players. He didn't care yes. what color they were. Right. And that was kind of radical in, in the late 50s and early 60s. Yeah. Boston Celtics won... Uh, Eight consecutive NBA championships. <laughs> yes. uh, don't remind me. <laughs> it's not, uh, you know, the, the Lakers were victims a number yes. of times. Uh, I hate that. It still hurts, even though I was too young to know at the time. Yeah. Actually, you know, I, I when I was in high school, I, I was a, a Celtic fan because of Bill. And uh, yeah. Willie Knowles played on that team. Uh-huh. And uh, I'd met Willie when I was still in in grade school. I was uh-huh. in eighth grade when I met Willie. You were at Power, Power Memorial High School. What grade school were you at? Oh, I went to St. Jude's Grammar, St. Jude's, you, yeah. Grammar School. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then uh, Power Memorial for high school. Right. But uh, just seeing that team play yeah. and seeing how Bill conducted himself with dignity yes. and pride. Uh, mm-hmm. And, he, you know, he wasn't, he didn't lash out angrily. You know, he, right. he had strong things to say, but he said them uh, in a way that uh, enabled me to understand how to conduct myself and uh, I thank him to this day for, yes. for his example. As I don't know mind. if he gets enough credit for the role he played, especially in sports. Um, I never hear him talked about that much. And I like the fact that now we, like 30 for 30 is a great program in ESPN, and yeah. they show a lot of these things. I think it was 30 for 30. Maybe it was during the Celtic-Laker thing. And I was so happy. As a Celtic hater, by the way, I'm saying this. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm from LA. As a Celtic hater crew, I was so happy to see that they took time to show the relationship between Red and Bill. Yeah. Here's a black man and a Jewish man, not just a white man. He was a Jewish man who was attacked by whites in Boston, by the way, at the time, you know, and was called horrible things and had to endure things himself. Yeah. You know, both of them together as a team, I thought was also very powerful at the time too, you know. It's a shame that some of those things get buried in, in history. You know? Some of the things that, that Bill spoke about in that book, though, uh-huh. were really, to me, fascinating. Because mm-hmm. uh, his family had to sneak out of Louisiana uh-huh. to get really? to Oakland. They had to sneak out? They had to sneak out. Bill's mm-hmm. dad uh, did something that was very crucial to a man that uh-huh. owned some kind of plant there in uh-huh. Louisiana, where he was from. Right. Northern part of Louisiana. Sure. So... Bill's dad had to sneak out of town to go take another job, and his uh-huh. family left surreptitiously at night. Right. And Bill remembers uh, they got to Oakland, and his mom took him to the library. Wow. And said, you're going to be spending a lot of time in this building. Uh-huh. And Bill had never had access to a library up to that point. Never had access to a library. He I mean, those are— Louisiana blacks uh, could not use the library. Yes, yes. Okay. That's where Bill came from. So you know Bill right. wasn't playing— uh, Bill's dad uh, paid money to get the wood to build the, the black school. Yes. And when he went to pick it up, the uh, the white man that owned the uh, wood plant said, realized what, what the wood was for and said mm-hmm. that Bill's dad couldn't have it. God. So it Bill's dad said, uh, mm-hmm. all right, well, give me my money back. And the guy said, no, I'm not giving you your money back. And Bill's dad threatened him with a shotgun, said, I'm going to leave here with my money or the wood, and uh, you're going to have uh, some holes in you. And the guy gave up the wood. But that's what they were going through in Louisiana in the 1930s or 40s. Think how courageous Bill Russell's father was at the time. This man was— Oh, my God. I mean, so it didn't come to Bill, you know, apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Yes, yeah. So, but that—that's what Bill had to go through, right? You know. So I get, yes. it, I got it. But I, up until that point, I didn't understand, yeah, why Bill had that fire in him, right? Wow. And that—that uh, that was very illuminating to me. That that book. Uh, yeah. And what was it like uh, going back to the other thing? What was it like being able to sit there? I mean, he was just Cassius Clay a few years earlier. Right. Now he's Muhammad Ali. He's in a completely different. He's looked at completely different from a couple of standpoints. I mean, even if he had not changed his name, just being an objector to the war would have been enough. Right. But now he's a Muslim, which for many people is a completely foreign thing. People are afraid of this. Even some blacks were afraid of it, you know, because it's nation of Islam. It's not just Muslims, it's nation of Islam. Right. What was it like sitting there with this figure at that time, being a kid and listening to this? Did well, it, you know, I, I was... Uh... 
I was a big fan of his, uh-huh. you know, and um, he, he there was nothing threatening about him to me. No, well, he was great. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You know, I, I'd seen him. Uh, I'd seen him on Hollywood Boulevard doing mm-hmm. magic tricks for people just walking <laughs> by. You know, that's fantastic. So you can't feel threatened by Muhammad. Wait, Ali. wait, we can't skate over that. You saw him, this was back in that that in the day, nineteen sixty six. He was on Hollywood Boulevard doing magic tricks for. People just passing by. That's fantastic. Yeah. He would do stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I met him later when he was, I thought he was doing magic tricks after he was boxing. He was doing, you know, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an amateur magician, so I love magic. Oh, you know? wow. okay. But in fact, he was trying to show me a trick, and I'm like, I know how that works, champ. But I didn't say that. I'm like, oh, champ, that's fantastic. You know? fake <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, whatever, champ. But outside, I'm like, that's fantastic, champ. How'd you do that? You know? But I thought he took it up like after he was boxing. He actually he was doing it back then. Right. He's always been into it. Yeah. And, uh, also, at the time, you had a very interesting relationship with John Wooden. Yeah, I did. You know, there's yeah. another, uh, you know, almost paternalistic figure in sports that influenced a lot of athletes at the time. Now, he is the white patriarch. I hate to say that. I mean, I'm a huge Wooden fan. You know, I don't want to just categorize him there. But you guys had an interesting relationship yeah, we also, too. You want to talk about that a little well, bit? Well, you know, I, I write about it in my book, yes. uh, Coach Wooden and Me, right. Our 50-Year Friendship. Mm-hmm. And uh, just— Understanding what he was all about uh, really helped me throughout my life. Mm-hmm. Know, he, he ended up teaching me until the day he died. Yeah, and uh, that, that's uh, that's quite a statement. Yeah, well, you know, he he did things. Coach Wooden did things uh, that at at the start of the civil rights movement that people don't even understand. Like what? All right, uh, mm-hmm. there was the NAIA. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with it. They had a basketball tournament every year. Sure. Mm-hmm. Postseason tournament was highly respected. Right, his team at Indiana State did very well in uh-huh. 1947, and they were invited to the tournament. Uh-huh. Uh, they called coach and uh, said, "You know, you, your team is great. We want you guys to come down to Kansas City for the uh, for the tournament, uh-huh. uh, but you can't bring your black player. We don't allow that." Yeah. Coach and what Wooden, year was this? This is 1947. 1947. Okay. So coach wouldn't. Tells the people, he said, oh, thanks very much for the invitation, but if I can't bring my whole team, I'm not coming. And he hung the phone up, and his team didn't go. Wow. The next year, mm-hmm. his team did better and got uh-huh. invited to the same tournament, and they started having the same conversation. <laughs> right. And Coach Wooden was getting ready to tell him. He said, look, look, no, all right, you can bring your black player. Yeah. Coach Wooden said, all right, we'll, we'll bring it. Of course, uh, the hotels in Kansas City was, were uh, segregated. Mm-hmm. So uh, he had to find a, 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 a minister's home for his black player to uh, to stay there. Mm. But uh, he played in the tournament uh, with his team, and uh, that was the first that integrated that that uh, tournament. Wow! And people, just Coach Wood never took any credit for it. I, I found out about that like only like a year or two before Coach Wooden passed away. Wow! He never used. You're he never told me. me about it. Never. I had to find out through other people. Like, you guys never had an argument. He says, hold on, son. Do you know what I did in you know, 1947? <laughs> like, he, he never, was, that he never him, came right. at you like that, right? And he, he just did that because he knew it was the right thing to do. He, you know, it was sure. It was a moral thing for him. Mm-hmm. And was it a—I feel like Coach Wooden, people like that. They're, you can't even call them old school. I think that they're in their own school, you know, because I feel like what made him remarkable as a coach— was not so much the X's and O's, but it was his rules of morality and justice and those types of things and what's right. And the, and the way to, the way to win. And the way to win and your values about winning and why those values are important. Is that, is that true? You think? He stressed preparation Preparation, and and hard work. Yeah. So that's the only way you get anything done. Right. Um, He didn't care what it was. And he was a hell of a recruiter. As well, I guess. I mean, you guys had some amazing well, talent in those years, too. I went to UCLA just because I liked the the way they played. Uh-huh. You know, and I thought I, I could fit into that system. That was Walt. You saw the Walt Hazard team, I guess, back in those days, right? Yeah. I, yeah. The, the Walt Hazard team and mm-hmm. then the next year uh, with Freddie Goss and Gail Goodridge at guard. Right. That was exemplary to me of, you know, how a team should play. Mm-hmm. You know, the pressing defense and right. quickness. And agility, that that was my strong point. I, I wasn't going to be Wilt Chamberlain, you know. Yeah. Right. Wilt was more like Shaq, you know, just yeah. a physical. Specimen, yeah. Really. I mean, 300 pounds of, of uh, well-tuned athlete. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wilt sometimes feels feels forgotten a little bit, you know. 
that type of thing. The game has changed so much, Kareem. Yeah. I can't say it makes me sad. It doesn't make me sad, but it does. I find it fascinating because I like the different parts of the game. I like the fact that big men have an importance in the game, but they're losing that importance, it feels. Do you, do you see that happening in the game? Well, now? the emphasis on the three-point shot. Three-point shot. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to criticize it. I mean, it is well, no, it's, exciting. It's changed the game. It has changed yeah. the game. Do you think it's changed better or worse, or it doesn't matter? Or? The fans still like it. Yes, the fans love it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the three-point shot is is so exciting. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's, uh, that's really what it's all about now, the mm-hmm. fan excitement. The year that we beat Boston in 85, yeah, we made, from the first game of the season to the last game of the playoff, mm-hmm. we made just under 100 three-point shots. Uh-huh. Uh, Golden State in uh, 2015, right. when they won the world championship, they made over 1,000 <laughs> three-point shots no. from the first game of the season to the last game of the playoffs. A thousand. A thou- over a thousand. Yes. And made, not made attempted, them. but made. Made them. So that extra point has, you know, you put a premium on, the, it's a lower percentage shot, but if you can make those, yeah. uh, your efficiency goes up. Right. And that that's how the game is played now. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, everybody's spread out, and uh, every guys that can attack the hoop and dish. Yeah. They're invaluable now. In some ways, you know, there's always there's always a, something goes away, but something is added to. Some ways you have to be more alert on defense because you can't allow a player to be alone for a second at a distance. Right. You know, so you have to be on your toes a little bit more. And you know? you, you, the mm-hmm. one-on-one defense now is uh, people who can do that are yeah very valuable. But then you got to go down the other end of the court and you have to be a threat. From, <laughs> right. From the three-point range, so yeah. it's uh, it's interesting now. It, it's created uh, mm-hmm. you know a good dynamic, and and the fans understand it, and, yeah. and they love it. Yeah, and it is fun. The Golden State Warriors are such a fun team. Yeah. Do you have any kind of uh, like when you look back on your career? You know, I mean, starting in Milwaukee, getting to play with with the Big O, you know, that type of thing, going to the Lakers, Showtime era, all that stuff. What do you have any takeaway from all of that? Did do you have when you think about those that time in your life? Do you have a feeling around it? How do you how do you view that time in your life? I, I think it was a great time mm-hmm. uh, at the top of my profession. Yeah, yeah. In, in, yeah. Uh, in a city like Los Angeles, sure. uh, wow, it couldn't have been better. Yeah, for for my uh, for my sports career, mm-hmm. and it's enabled me to have a, a career since then. You know, right. So I'm 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 very thankful for it. Uh-huh. Was it tough to appreciate it during the time, like when you're in that type of environment? No, but... no, no. Because you know I, mm-hmm. I played till I was 42. Yeah, oh, no, a lot I of know, my yeah. friends were having strokes and heart I mean, attacks. You could have played till 45. I'll be honest. With you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I made it as far as I did. Yes, yes. But my friends, they were all having strokes and heart attacks. Yeah, you know, really? the... and so uh, I'm still playing professional ball. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, and uh, I was glad I had that career. You know. Mm-hmm. It really meant a difference uh, health-wise. Yeah. Did you and the like as you say the people you were able to meet by playing the game, yeah. heads of state, you know, celebrities, really people in the culture, all that yeah. type of stuff. Being able to write several books. Do you have a? Do you have any favorite team or favorite year from that time? Um, when you look back on it all, does anything stick? I mean, I know you mentioned '85, which I believe is one of the best teams ever. That '85 yeah, I think Laker that team was a great team. Yeah, I, I think '87. '87 was great. That was an awesome year. Because uh, you know, I uh-huh. during the, I turned 40 during the playoffs and yeah. uh, led my team in scoring for yeah, boy. for the finals, and you know we beat the Celtics. <laughs> That's it, right. it was great, you know. And then the next year we did our back to back, but that that eighty seven that that was fun. That, that was, was a special. fun year. It looked like you guys were having so much fun that year yeah, we too, were. especially the year before after losing to Houston yeah, no, or whatever it was. All, no, the year before, yeah, we we yeah. lost to Houston. No, it still hurts, Graham. Yeah. I remember, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That uh, that shot that beat us. Oh my God! Oh, it was terrible. Yeah, but uh, mm-hmm. we came back and and won it, and uh, yeah. It, it it felt good and all, all the pressure was off at that point. Mm-hmm. We were able the next year to to win it, but yeah. that that was a fun year. Yeah, it must uh, do your heart good to see Irvin after all these years, seeing him as a kid coming into the league, uh-huh. and uh, the things he's been able to do. I mean, going yeah, he's been a very successful businessman. Yeah. Are you guys still are you guys close at all, or do you talk a lot? Or we talk. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just saw him. Irvin like, Magic Johnson for you. 
you people then. I just saw him two weeks ago mm-hmm. at, at Dodger Stadium. You know, he's, he's yes. out there. So uh, we're in touch. Yeah. He just had a birthday. Yeah, that's right. Happy birthday, Magic. Yeah. Didn't get a chance to say it. Do you uh, still want a role in basketball at all, or where, where do you want to fit into the game these days? Well, you know, I I, I do a few things for the for the Lakers right. sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just helped the NBA with their rookie orientation. They uh-huh. they want to talk to some old timers and, and get an idea of what <laughs> right. what to expect. It, it's a good thing. I, I think mm-hmm. it really helps the the young guys as they start what, their what is careers. The big, what's the biggest challenge for a rookie in the NBA this year, or maybe in it's, any professional sport? A, I guess you could say well, it's a brave. It's just a brave new world for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and they, they're making all this money, and they, they're going to find out that uh, they become targets. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't think that. They thought it was all glitter yeah. and glamour. Right. You know? And uh, the temptations, uh, they're going to have family members begging them for, for money. <laughs> and, you know, right. the, their uncle is going to want to yeah. start a, a sporting goods shop or something. That's you know? hilarious. To, Oh, I love that look. You guys just missed that look. That's hilarious. Your uncle may want to start a sporting goods store. You should hear some of the stories. Man. Yeah. It's crazy. Right. That's very funny. Uh, oh, let me just ask you a couple of questions about the current Lakers, too, before I go to the next one. Uh, I'm excited about the possibilities of these current Lakers. Um, do you like this team, possibly this, these young kids playing for the team now? Do you like uh, Lonzo Ball? Are you a fan of his so far? Um, I, I haven't seen him play enough. The, mm-hmm. I went to one game last year. At UCLA? At UCLA. Mm-hmm. They, they lost that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it wasn't – he didn't look too good in that game. Yeah. But they, he had a good year. Right. But uh, they, they're going to need uh, – they're going to need some help up front. That, you yeah. know, that's that's where they, they're right. lacking. Front yeah. court plays. Front court, yeah, I agree. Real crucial. Uh, Ibika might uh, – he might develop. He's, uh-huh. he's a young kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, He's enthusiastic. He wants to learn. Right. So we'll see. Yeah. Oh, you know what I wanted to ask you about, too? Another person, when I think of the black athletes over our time who have kind of been forgotten, and another one that sticks out to me is Arthur Ashe. You know, you never hear much about Arthur Ashe Mm. when these issues are talked about and how important he was during the time. Were you a fan of, of Arthur Ashe? Did you ever meet him or spend? Wait a minute. We, Bruins, come on. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with of you? Right? No, I know. I just, I don't know if you I was a freshman when he was yet. a senior. Yes. Uh, I, I met, I met Did Arthur. Did you see him on campus? Yeah. Yeah. He used to come by the gym and watch us. He watched us while we were um, playing against the varsity guys when I was a freshman. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. He, he'd come up to the gym. He said, hey, you guys going to have a good team. I said, yeah. <laughs> Arthur was a nice guy. I helped him with his book. Uh-huh. Um, go up, uh, I forget. Jeez. The trilogy he did on, on black athletes. Yes. Uh-huh. I helped him do some of the research mm-hmm. on that. And uh, great guy. He had so much quiet dignity, it seemed yeah, like. Yeah, he did. And yeah. uh, in, a, in a tough sport. Yeah, know? really was, you know. Yeah. We haven't seen anyone quite like him, I think like Arthur Ashe in tennis no. um, on the male side. The Williams sisters are their own type of thing. but Right, yeah. They've, yeah. Uh, they've done a great job of, yeah. uh, for women and, and for uh, black Americans, yeah. s- especially black women. You know. Right. Um, are, you, are you a big fan of women's sports? Uh, well, I, th- I think it's great that they have access to mm-hmm. athletics. Uh, that's positive for them. Yeah. I, I'm glad to see it. Right. Women's tennis has always been so exciting. I've watched women's tennis for years since the Martina, Chris Everett days, you know. And mm. I think uh, I love the personalities that are in tennis. And just seeing, I mean, the fact that Serena won a championship while she's pregnant. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, as as guys, we, you'd never have to go through something like that. Right. I mean, Cream, you had to wear goggles for your cornea, but you were never carrying a kid, like, on the way to a championship. Come on, no, that's, you know, <laughs> right. there's no comparison. Yes. Sometimes we don't realize how what that road is, too, you know. Uh, you have other interests, too, which are interesting to me. And you're also a cultural and media critic, you know, and some of the things you've talked about television shows. You you watch a lot of television. You even talked about, because I know you're a big comic book person, right? Yeah, and right. Uh, I have uh, a graphic novel series uh, about Mycroft Holmes. Yes. 
So you're that, a big Sherlock Holmes fan as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So that'll be coming out. I, I, I wrote a novel, yeah. uh, Mycroft Holmes, and uh-huh. it, it did very well. I, I was totally shocked, you know. Because uh-huh. you, you write a novel and you get a whole different type of criticism. Yeah. You do something that's nonfiction, they want to know if you got your facts right and if you can right. use the language, if you can do that. Sure. You won't get beat up too bad. You write a stinky novel? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> how, how long did you have the idea for this? Years, probably. Uh-huh. You know, I, w- I would think of my own plots and stuff. So finally, I, um, uh-huh. my manager, she got me to, she said, you got to do it. Uh-huh. So I, I put my thoughts down on paper and found the right people to work with. Uh, uh-huh. Anna Waterhouse was a great person for me to work with, my, my co-author. Right. She covered the bases that I didn't have, and uh, mm-hmm. we got it done, and... Uh, it was a critical success. I, I was. Was it something thrilled. you enjoyed? Did you enjoy doing that? Yeah, I did. I, uh-huh. I didn't think I would. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like having a baby, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there you go again, Cram. I'm saying yeah. we can't really relate to that. What do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, as a father of five, I, sure. You know, it's, uh, but you put it out there, and you know, and you can be proud of it. It's it's, right. it's great, great feeling. Yeah. Did, will, will you write another one? Do you think? Oh yeah. In that same world, in the Sherlock Holmes world. Oh, uh, Mycroft Holmes, is, there's a sequel coming. It's yeah. going to be a, a trilogy, I believe. Yeah, are we going to see this be a TV show or movies or anything, you think? In a perfect world, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. That's what I'm hoping for, yeah. uh, that it will catch on like that. Yeah, you wrote an essay about black superheroes. You had Were you kind of advising what a superhero should, some of the qualities of a superhero? Well, just, you know, as, as a black identifying with uh, black Americans, it, mm-hmm. that's tricky ground, you know, so yeah. they got to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> with some of the qualities that they pick, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, Kareem, um, thank you so much for coming. Are you going to do any more acting, by the way? Are you still no, interested in I that? Don't, I don't think, Done uh, with that? you know, they have any roles for me uh-huh. unless I can uh, substitute for Chewbacca, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Other than that, I'm, I'm gonna hey, let them do it. You, you know? never know. You put that. You put that out there. You'll have Lucas calling you and that kind of thing. I, I met uh-huh. George. Nice guy. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I was really happy what he did with the uh, Red Tails. I don't know if you saw it. I, I remember that. I mean, the fact that he wanted to do that—that that, yeah. that was an important project. No, for and him. it took him like yeah. 20 years to get it. George done. Lucas couldn't get that made. Can you imagine that? George Lucas couldn't get something made. No, yeah, uh, something. That, the issues and yeah. it's dealing with colored people, right? You know, it, <laughs> right. It's it, we got to get over that, man. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad to see that done. And uh, Hidden Figures, oh my goodness! Oh, they're so wonderful. Such a great film, yeah. And it just mm-hmm. put the lie to all of that other stuff, man. Yeah. All the uh, all the black Americans that that motivated, right? All the women that it motivated, yes. You know. That was incredible. I was so happy to see that. So inspirational. Yeah. Do you have hope for the future, Karim? Of course I have hope for the future. But Are uh, you an optimist? I'm an optimist because this is America, and, mm-hmm. and we got this far. And, of right. course, you know what we talked about earlier, uh, looking back, uh, you know, it, it, it's not as bad as it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can't be moving backwards. Uh, and I think the alarm should go off right now. Uh, it's a crucial time in America. People who, who love this country have to s- stand up and define it uh, for for once and all for what it is. Agreed. Very wise words. Thank you so much, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, everyone, Black on the Air. It's been an honor. Pleasure to have you here, my friend. Pleasure was mine. Thank you for the opportunity. Go Lakers. <laughs> Go Bruins. Yeah, Bruins. Yeah, yeah. yeah UCLA. <laughs>